Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making business better, Raj Sisodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. And today we have as our guest, Ed Boyd from the UK, live and in person and in lockdown in London. We've got Ed to be able to come out. He's going to keep his social distance so we don't have to worry too much about that. But Ed is the executive director and really the co-founder of a, um, a not-for-profit over here called Regenerate Trust, which is really aiming to try to make the UK the best place in the world for purpose-driven businesses. So, Ed, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thanks, Timothy. Thanks for having me on. Um... I'd have come on anyway, but there's so little to do in lockdown that, you know, you've got all the time that you want. So uh, <laughs> uh, glad, to, glad to be here. Great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so, Ed, it's wonderful to, uh, to meet you. And uh, you know, I always am curious about the path that we've been on. All of us uh, arrived at this kind of work in our own ways. So I'd love to learn a little bit about your journey, uh, or, you know, where it started, uh, how it evolved, uh, what made you start to focus on these kinds of topics. So if you could just tell us a little bit of your uh, life story. Yeah, no, I'm really happy to. And um, um, so I guess it all started. I um, sort of studied economics um, when I was younger, kind of followed that path into the city. And I still remember this Christmas party where um, my boss put his arm around my shoulder and said, Ed, you know, in 10 years time, if you play your cards right, that you could be that guy. And he pointed at a really successful guy and he had lots of money and a great car. But he was also stressed, full divorce. And I was like, hey, I don't want to be that guy. That's not going to motivate me. <laughs> and so um, I started off from working out, hey, actually, maybe I, I don't want to work in the city. Maybe something else motivates me. And I then spent a kind of career for about 10 or 12 years um, kind of working on domestic social impact in the UK. And what motivated me in that is, you know, at the same time as spending time within kind of political circles or within governments to try and change policy and law. I probably spent half of my time with, in prisons um, with people convicted of drug dealing, uh, with gang members, um, with uh, homeless communities around London and around the rest of the UK. And I think it drove in me this passion that actually we can create a society that is fair, that rewards effort, that uses the power of markets for good and government for good. And it's kind of been a lifelong uh, passion of mine to drive an economy in a society that kind of works for everyone. Mm. And so I went into government um, when David Cameron was prime minister um, with a view to helping to try and shape welfare reform, um, uh, shape the kind of poverty strategy from a government side. And I feel like we did some good in that, some lessons learned that I would, uh, I would change if I had the chance and we went back. But one of the big lessons I learned was, well, one of the big things that came from it, was, I guess, was an itch. And it was, on one hand, we were saying, 
you know, the best route out of poverty is a job. And on the, then on the other hand, um, you know, anything to do with business was divorced from any poverty strategy. You know, you talk to people in charge of business and it was like, this is about productivity. This is about growth. This is about GDP. We'll deal with that. You deal with the poverty stuff through welfare forms and through um, uh, uh, other initiatives in, this, in, in that kind of traditional space. And that itch never really get, went away because I think from my background studying economics and, and working really briefly in the city, I just felt like investment and business had a huge role to play in helping those people that I saw struggling to get a job, to turn their life around, to get enough money to pay for housing. And that with all the best we in the world, like you, we could get government to do as much as it can. But where it starts taking on the responsibility of, of maybe where businesses should be stepping in. It often did it badly. And there was no mechanism for business to kind of think, hey, how can I play a greater role? And so, you know, that was the heart behind Regenerate for me and the other co-founders right at the beginning. And um, yeah, that's why we got it going. Mm, wow. And I think you've, you've uh, as many others have, you've diagnosed or identified a key problem in our societies and why we have this rising economic populism and the appeal of some demagogic uh, type of leaders around the world. To me, it's a bigger problem than uh, fundamental religious fundamentalism or terrorism. Now, is this uh, you know underlying um, uh, distrust as well as suffering that has existed now for a long time, where worker pay has been flat and people haven't seen the benefits and the fruits of capitalism in the way that uh, it's capable of delivering. Yeah. And so I think unless we address that. We have the danger of, you know, the way I said, we need to uh, celebrate uh, and elevate capitalism. Otherwise, we will decimate it. Yeah. And I think that is the real danger that, uh, that we are up against. So we re really do need to rethink that. And I think, you know, treating people at the bottom of the economic ladder well and giving them a pathway up, you know, I think that that should be something that every company does. So I'm delighted that you're, you're part of that effort. Well, you know, Raj, it also reminds me of a conversation that we had and um, in October of 2016, when we were in Austin at the uh, Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. And Tom Perez, who at that time was the Secretary of Labor in the Obama administration, was at a, a lunch table. And I know that Kip Kindle was there, you were there, I were there, and um, there were a couple of other people. And... Um, Tom, at that point, um, he's now the head of the, I think it's the Democratic National Committee. Uh, but at that point, he was going to be leading what we thought was going to be the next president's transition team, which was Hillary Clinton. And he said, listen, I can get you into Hillary. Talk about conscious capitalism. What are you going to say? And, and we said, well, conscious capitalism is good, you know, and we need to elevate, you know, humanity and business can be a force for good. He said, yeah, that's great. W what are you going to ask her for? And we're going to say, well, we're going to ask her to support conscious capitalism, conscious business. It's, it's a force for good. It's a good thing in the world. And, um, and he said, no, guys, what's your legislative agenda? What are you going to be asking her to be promoting the government to do differently? And I know at that point, we all sort of sat around and went, uh, duh. <laughs> uh, no idea, really. But, you know, maybe something around... Uh, you know, uh, ah, you know, and it was it was one of those aha moments. And I think, Ed, that's where you're trying to step in here and sort of say, hey, listen, uh, there is an opportunity for us to be thinking about what's the ecosystem that needs to be in place. 
to get the best out of capitalism. And that yeah. means working, talking with civil society. It means working with the government. It, it means reaching out to others um, as a part of that broader capitalist ecosystem. Yeah. And I, I think part of that was um, governments often have this lens because, you know, you vote in a government. They want people to like them because they get more votes if they do. And so um, I think over the last couple of decades, they are more likely to say, yes, we will take on this responsibility when often, you know, it's a responsibility that maybe businesses, maybe charities, maybe individuals should be holding. So uh, increasingly, they soak up a lot of that responsibility that should be spread out across different actors in that ecosystem. And <laughs> one of the things, you know, wouldn't mention Hillary's emails, but I spoke to her, I'd mention about this topic. Um, the, that I'd focus on would be often sometimes government needs to focus on here's a problem. What is it that we can do to help business solve this problem as much as what can we do directly to solve it? And just to give an example of that, um, in the UK, there's an issue with low productivity and stagnating pay for, for those in entry-level jobs and lack of progression. And so the traditional government response or the campaigns that kind of go to government, you know, there's some merit in them. But it's often to say, hey, how can we top up welfare payments for those in work such that if you're in that kind of job, government can subsidize your wages so you could feed your family, get a roof over your head. There is far more focus on that than there is on, hey, how can we help businesses uh, invest in staff such that they are more productive, such that they can pay them more money, such that we don't need that government input to make sure they've got enough to get by, but actually they progress out of entry-level jobs into advanced ones. And I think that's where conversations need to be matured with leaders is, hey, what is your theory about the problems you're trying to solve and the role you feel business has in, in tackling them? Because at the moment, that conversation is not being, really being had enough. Well, I like the fact that um, you've picked one particular angle on this, which is purpose-driven businesses. And maybe say a little bit about, about that, because clearly, you know, our first pillar of conscious capitalism is around purpose. Businesses have a higher purpose, and it goes beyond just making money. And so I'm curious, how did you and Regenerate get to this point that's saying, okay, that's going to be the lever point that we're going to use to you know, to elevate this ecosystem, to have a greater impact? Yeah, great question. Um, to, to be honest, to start with, it was a focus on thinking about, you know, um, Clive, who I met in a homeless shelter, or people I met in, in kind of in prisons and thinking, you know, there are big social issues here that we're facing in the UK and around the rest of the world. <laughs> you look at climate issues, and they're no smaller than our social issues. And it was a really simple calculation. We just need the power of everyone to be pulling around tackling the social and environmental issues. And we, we need a bit more from business. And so my starting point was, you know, coming far too much probably from a government hat was like, right, how can we force people to do something they don't want to do? Mm. And then the amazing thing is we talked to a load of businesses. You know, this was founded by a mixture of myself and then uh, entrepreneurs and bus senior business leaders in the UK who are passionate about this purpose-driven business agenda. And, I, and their hunch was actually, there is the demand within business to go beyond just employing people, which is good by itself, paying taxes, to do more to tackle these social environmental issues. Because, you know, what are businesses? They're just collections of people who are as passionate about these topics as you or I a lot of the time. And so 
we nailed down on kind of purpose-driven businesses because we found that actually at the heart, there were so many businesses in the UK that maybe not because of the system, but despite it, we're saying, hey, we've got a purpose beyond making money and we think we can do good in terms of those social and environmental issues. And I guess the final nail in the coffin, as it were, to say, hey, this is, this is the agenda to pursue, was we did a lot of research and we looked at every study that anyone has ever done on purpose-driven businesses or businesses trying to do good or however they were framed. And the evidence is so clear that if you act in that way, you are more likely to make money over the longer term. You're more likely to have a sustainable business. And so whether you're looking at it from a shareholder perspective or these wider stakeholders that we're talking about in society, it just makes sense. You've got business leaders wanting it to happen. You've got big problems that need tackling. And also something we haven't mentioned, you've got the public so on board with this agenda. They want to work for these companies. They want to buy from them and they want to invest in them. So if I'm honest, it feels like this is the way that business is going and will naturally go because all the forces are heading in that direction. Our job isn't to make that happen. Our job is to try and speed that up because the quicker it happens, the more good will be done and the better the business environment and the stronger the business environment will be. I love it. Now, you've just uh, come out with a white paper and um, the white paper um, sort of tries to tackle what's getting in the way. In fact, the title of it is, is What is Holding a Purpose-Driven Business Back? So I'm curious, tell me a little bit about how we got to that title and to that white paper. Yeah. So our previous research showed, hey, there was so much demand for purpose-driven businesses from the business leaders, from consumers, from employees, from investors. And we knew of a load of companies that were acting in this kind of way and have really inspired us. But there's also lots that aren't, but have that intention to be like that. And we had a question, which is, well, given everything is heading in this direction, why is the agenda not moving faster? Why are more companies not acting in a purpose-driven way? And what we found was actually those who were uh, uh, doing good and going beyond the basics we're doing so despite the system around them. And I often had to push a lot of boulders uphill to make it work. And there were four areas we identified in our research. And they're really simple. First is, it's actually quite difficult to identify a purpose-driven company versus one that's purpose-washing. Second area is, uh, it's actually quite difficult for lots of them to demonstrate that they are having that positive social and environmental impact. Thirdly, it can be tricky for them to set up legally in a way that ensures that their purpose is protected. That if they suddenly get a very big activist shareholder, for example, that doesn't really care about it, doesn't agree with it, to make sure that actually they can protect themselves against someone trying to steer them off course, as it were, um, or, or any other kind of uh, influence. Actually, that can be hard in the UK. And finally, um, we... Uh, found that the, um, uh, it can be tricky when a company needs it to get sufficient uh, investment that is aligned to its purpose and remains aligned to its purpose, both in terms of the type of investment it is and also the timelines with which those investors are looking to, to seek a return if it's a long-term play. I love that first question of, you know, how do you know a company is purposeful? Mm -hmm. and versus purpose washing. And um, 
you know, I'm curious, maybe go through each one of these in a little more detail, but maybe start with that one. Uh, yeah. What did you find when you dug into that? So, so we did some polling with uh, a group called um, uh, B Lab UK. Um, uh, in the B Lab, that's our, our friends at B Lab and B Corps and things. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, we're big fans of. And um, uh, there was a striking finding in that, asking the public, you know, uh, do you find it easy or difficult to um, tell apart someone who is generally purpose driven, trying to make the world a better place, and someone who's just saying it for reasons of marketing or branding? And it's just not connected with who they are as an organization. And that only one in 10 said they found it very or fairly easy to identify one from the other. This we can then couple with a load of studies that show that employees and consumers want to buy from and work for uh, purpose-driven companies. Um, I won't go into the details now, but safe to say they are often prepared to pay more. Um, they are often more loyal. They are often more likely to tell their friends to buy from a company that they think is really ethical in the way that it's behaving. Um, uh, equally, employees are more likely to stay for longer, often sometimes accept lower pay if they think this company has a purpose and a mission and I'm behind it and I get to be part of it and it's genuine. Now, all of that is fantastic. But if it's difficult to identify who those companies are, a lot of that benefit from consumers, employers, and we won't get onto investment yet, um, is muted. And so the benefits of being purpose-driven are muted as well, which therefore kind of undermines this whole agenda because if you can't tell who they are, you can't prefer them. You can't benefit them. You can't say, I can take a job at that one, that company, but not another company because I know they're purpose-driven because actually you're not sure if it's, the, if it's true or not, or whether one company has just invested in some really good branding, but doesn't care about what they talk about at all. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's, that's, that's really important. I mean, one of the things that Raj and I sometimes debate is, you know, like somebody comes up with a purpose. Now, first of all, how do you know it's a good one? <laughs> and secondly, you know, how do you know they're actually living it? Raj, you, you jump in on this, because I know you have some opinions about that. Yeah, so um, I think a genuine purpose, uh, first of all, has to impact uh, all of your decisions uh, have filtered through that, right? Uh, it has to, the framing that I use nowadays is that uh, every great purpose is a healing purpose at some level. It reduces suffering in some dimensions, it brings more joy into the world, and then it has certain characteristics. So, so we have a way of looking at somebody's purpose and seeing how real it is and what kind of impact uh, it can have. Um, so are you, are you uh, simply looking at it from the lens of how do we identify and sort of almost give a, um, uh, a, an assessment or evaluation of companies? Or is it also helping companies figure out how to make their purpose more real, more tangible? Well, first, on the um, working out if they're real and tangible, I got some great advice from um, a guy called John Elkington, who um, uh, coined the term triple bottom line. And I was spouting on about, it's all about them having a purpose and that's, 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 that's where it leads. You need, you need a company with a purpose. And he, he kindly reminded me that um, the mafia has a purpose, but we might not think it's a positive one for society or the environment. Yeah. Um, and that the nature of the purpose is so important. And so, you know, the work we've done to date, we're pretty new. It's simply to be to set out, hey, what do we mean by purpose? You know, similar to you, it's affects everything, it's in their DNA, and it's positive towards both the society and environment. And, you know, 
there's, there's, there's technical work about what that means, uh, but at a high level, that's kind of how we see it. Our focus has been less on working with individual companies, but instead trying to change the system within which these companies sit. Mm-hmm. We think there are lots of players helping companies to do better, to be better. We want to make it easier for that to be the case. We want to make it more likely that the good guys win and that the obvious case for being purpose-driven becomes that much more obvious um, because it's easier to identify them, set up as them, get investment um, if you're one of them. And so, so that's, been our, that's been our focus to date. You know, we, we started earlier this year during a pandemic. So um, um, we've got a fair amount done, but that's, um, that's something that we haven't, we haven't got to yet. And you cited a statistic in the report, which I found a little surprising. 44% of, uh, of uh, companies are thinking about their business in terms of purpose, but about 44% are still thinking about it in terms of shareholder yeah. maximization. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's true. So we worked with the British Academy, uh, who did a fantastic uh, poll that wasn't based on what public thought, but look just at um, what we call kind of business leaders. Um, you know, uh, people within C-suite, um, direct reports of C-suite, that kind of, um, um, that kind of level. And one of the questions we asked them is, you know, what's, what do you think business is all about? And it was a neck and neck tie between those who said, actually the main purpose is, you know, maximizing shareholder value. And another group that said, um, it's actually about having a, a positive purpose that goes beyond just maximizing shareholder value. And what, when we broke that down, what was fascinating was um, um, uh, if you were younger, if you were female, you were more likely to think that companies should be purpose-driven. The purpose of business went beyond um, the financials. Um, and for us, that was encouraging. Like you might think, oh, we want 90% or 100% of business leaders to think in our direction. I, and, I, and I think this is something that if it's level pegging, that's, that, that's a good start. Next year, you know, maybe, maybe it's 60% um, think the purpose of business should be uh, the way forward. And maybe in 10 years time, it's 70%. And I think moving that dial is quite a, quite a good metric of success, I think, because the business leaders will determine so much about where their organizations go. I think it does point to a kind of a, uh, a mental model about purpose and profits. That is, these are two different paths that one can choose. Whereas our research, and I think you also cited some of that, that the pathway to higher profitability is purpose, sustained higher profitability. And I don't think the, the, the phrase of maximization serves us. Yes, higher profits, that doesn't mean you maximize profits. In fact, uh, you, you might have higher profits than you would if you had a profit maximizing mindset, actually. Yeah. But yeah. the mindset actually changes everything because if it's profit maximizing, that means you're going to trade off other things. But I think breaking that, uh, that uh, sort of bipolar thinking or trade off mentality that it's either one or the other. I think the, the way I think somebody in the UK expressed it, right? Chris Myers, I think. Right? It's, it's the purpose is to find profitable solutions to the world's problems. It's not to make a profit. Yeah. It's to find profitable solutions. Yeah. And I think that's the missing piece for many leaders still yeah you're you're spot on and that that's why we see what we're doing is not going against the grain or saying like let's defeat one side and another side a perspective of business wins it's about aligning all stakeholders interests and realizing that this is the way that everybody wins um i think some area we've done some research in but we could we need more in is long-term 
businesses are proven if they're purpose-driven to be more sustainable and successful. It is the case, though, that it's possible to make a lot more money in the short term if you ignore that. And I think there is an issue of timelines of short-termism in, in, in kind of markets that can work against, I think, for yeah. when, when a lot of people that we've spoken to talk about the profitability side of things and there being a trade-off, I think often they're thinking about it in the short term rather than taking a long-term view. Yeah, I agree. But in the, even in the short term, if you increase profits, usually there's somebody else paying an intangible price for that. Yeah. Whether it's your community or the environment or people and their health and so forth. So even the short term uh, ability to increase profits could be an illusion. You know, you're extracting more than you're creating, I think. In, in yeah. Many cases. Well, I think that leads uh, an interesting point, Ed, you know, in, in the paper, you talk about four different areas where you start to identify what a purpose-driven company might look like. And if I recall, one was around intent, one was around what's their business model, is that aligned? There was something around governance and operations, and then finally about measurement. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that fits in here? Yeah, sure. So I think this is what for us separates um, those who talk about purpose or, or, or higher aim and those who are living it out. And it's about making sure that the purpose is in the DNA of a company. And so for our view, you know, we split it out into those four areas. Like, do they have the intent? Is it in operations? Is it in governance? Is it in their, uh, are they measuring it to understand it? Um, you know, you could simplify that as holistically. It's imbued in every part of what they do and at every level that that organization operates at. And I think unless that's the case, uh, there's a question, you know, do they mean it? Is it driving their decision-making at every level? Um, uh, is it affecting how the organism of a business is, is operating? So I think when we talk about, can you identify these companies? You know, words are really important because they, uh, it, um, uh, they're things we're committing to. But I think we're often looking for, does it go deeper than that? And is it embedded, is it embedded in their DNA? I think the way that we'd often summarize that. Yeah. So... One of the interesting things that I know you and I've discussed is this notion of uh, sort of opting in or opting out on purpose. And um, I want to get into that discussion by, you know, there's this behavioral economics study that sort of says, you know, certainly in the U.S. when they're trying to get people to save for their retirement, if you have to opt out of the retirement program, you're much more likely to stay in and save money versus if you have to opt into the retirement program, you're much less likely to go and save the money. So the presumption is, you know, presume you're saving, but give them the freedom to step out if they don't want to. And, and I think that's part of what you're, you're talking about when you start talking about government role and how companies are incorporated is to sort of try to move towards that place where, you know, you ought to be assuming you have a purpose. And if you don't want to have a purpose, that's okay. You can opt out, but <laughs> let's try to make that the norm. Yeah. Um, I would be so excited the day when someone purpose-driven business is just seen as business. Maybe we drop the word purpose because you're like, that's just who businesses are. And I think the day when it can be surprising when someone can say, wow, I thought about working for that business, but they didn't really seem to have a mission. They didn't really seem to be thinking this is how the world will be a better place because we exist. So of course I didn't go and work there or buy from them. And I think making sure that we go from on the transition, that this approach 
is goes from being somewhat of a niche but a massively growing one to just being how businesses should be um, is such an exciting journey because again going back to the fundamentals business leaders want to move things in this direction the public want to be moved in this direction there are big issues that only businesses can help solve uh, and a unique role for them so it, it's kind of everything's moving that direction anyway it's speeding up that journey of normalizing purpose within business is at the heart of what we are doing and to give a little anecdote of this one uh, part of it is about looking at the legal side part of it is also cultural and um, uh, I don't know what's been like in the US, but in the UK, there's been a big shift in the last 18 months on plastic bags. Um, no one thought much, uh, unless you're particularly environmentally conscious, about popping into Tesco's or Waitrose or another supermarket. And, uh, oh, I haven't bought a bag with me. Yeah, just I'll have some more bags and I'll throw those bags in the bin when I'm finished. Um, fast forward. Um, a big cultural change that came through, changes in government policy, changes in the way that supermarkets work, changes in the kind of culture, um, especially within London where I live. And uh, it was all brought home to me when I forgot my uh, lifetime bag, went into the supermarket and I asked for a plastic bag and I said this woman behind me, tut tut me. And I realised at that point there'd been this huge cultural shift that suddenly not only was there a legal pressure for companies, but there was a social pressure to say, hey, you aren't being responsible towards the environment. And um, not that I'm encouraged tut-tutting. It's a very British thing, and I don't think Americans should adopt it. But it just shows that sense of if you combine top-down government legal change, uh, at the same time, there's a bit of an uprising about what the public think and get it right. You can create social pressure and uh, legal and regulatory direction at the same time, and you can have remarkable results in a short period of time. Um, and so I think that's a bit of a model that we look at when thinking, how do we normalize what we know is in everyone's interest for business? So Ed, uh, I've been a business professor for 35 years, and I really think that business schools are a big part of the problem and the challenge here. Either we're still mostly rooted in the old paradigms and professors are notoriously slow to adapt to new thinking. What do you think about that? Is that part of your uh, agenda in terms of impacting business education going forward? Um, pass, we don't know yet. Um, I, can, I, I totally see that. There's also been a number of business schools in the UK who've been frankly super helpful for what we're trying to set up. And I guess that's given us an insight into, Yes, I think academia is often quite slow to move because it's got quite deep, entrenched views about how things should be. There's less flexibility there than, say, in the startup land with entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, I reflect on my own, you know, uh, education of two degrees in economics and still remember asking the question about the rational economic man that I am here to maximize my profits and thinking, I don't think I like the sound of who you're telling me I am. And challenging that and saying, no, 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 this is just a model. This is how it works. And, you know, that's still the heart of our economics textbooks. And that hasn't changed. So to that extent, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. But, you know, there's some enlightened ones in the UK that we've worked with that have been um, at the forefront in thinking through some of this. So Colin Mayer, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. uh, comes from Sci Business School and is thinking about actually the purpose of businesses to find profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. And so I think I've got hope that if you can move those business schools in the right direction, or you know, they're moving themselves in this direction, that you could have sweeping change quite quickly. Um, 
but we haven't got into the detail of it yet. So uh, that's probably all I can say for now. Yeah, the school at Oxford is going to be an interesting example because Paul Pullman is now the chairman of the board there. And um, between Colin Mayer and Bob Eccles, who's come over from Harvard, who's working on a lot of the ESG metrics and how do you, how do you drive standards around those things, and their connection with the Economics of Mutuality program that comes out of Mars, uh, the, the big confectionery and pet food company, um, they're really trying to to change the paradigm around, you know, trying to be the business school with purpose. I think that's what they've declared is their purpose or something close to that, isn't it? Just because I'm an Oxford alum doesn't mean anything that I'm pushing the business school. I didn't yeah. go to the business school. No, that's <laughs> I think overall, uh, business schools in England are more progressive in that sense. American business schools, I think, are more stuck in the financial paradigm. But one of the other things that I've seen in, uh, in Colombia, in South America, getting to what Timothy was talking about, how do we make this the default rather than an opt-in? Uh, is that the government there is pushing kind of a, their own version of uh, B Corps? Uh, they have another BIC, I think they call it. And they're trying to create 1,500 of those uh, in the next year or so. They have about three or 400 so far. But the twist is that if you want to do any kind of business with the government, you have to be certified that way. Mm. Right? And I think that becomes a catalytic uh, process, what Timothy calls a forcing function. Right? That if you can do that, then that will encourage more and you can kind of get that flywheel uh, going and then others will emulate. So I think there is a scope for policy changes along those lines as well, in addition to taxation and, and, uh, and things of that sort that we use. The other thing I remember in the US, you know, when I first became a professor, we used to lament the fact that quality had slipped so much in the US, right? The Japanese and, and some European companies were far better in quality and American car companies and many others were just shoddy. And then they started the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award, named after a former Commerce Secretary, I think, in the Reagan administration. And that one award just triggered a whole consciousness around quality. Mm. And Six Sigma and all of those kinds of things came out of that. And to the point where it dramatically elevated uh, quality standards over the years. You know? So I think things like that, the government can play a role, yeah. a catalytic role in, in moving these things forward. And, and Raj, I'm uh, hesitant to say the least to comment anything on academia with someone of your caliber having been in it for so long. But one of the um, one of the reflections I've had is the it's partly it's it's kind of in the UK, but it's in the states more so. There's this kind of polarization that is kind of connected with politics as well, whereby things have become quite binary, such that there's kind of Either you're either you're for the for the free market, and the free market will um, is 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 the way that we're all prosperous and successful, or you're or you're a socialist, mm -hmm. and the language has become polarized, and I and I and I feel like a lot of the agendas have done too. And what I find fascinating as we've explored our agenda is, um, it's there is an agenda for the free market for the market, as it were, whereby. People, we have more sustainable markets, uh, people make sustainably more money, and big social environmental issues are tackled, and that business can do that. And if you look at the history, you know, I don't want to pin everything on Friedman and the Chicago School of Business, but like before then, there was this general sense that business, businesses were there and had a right to operate because they made the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can kind of bring all sides of political divides and academic thought 
to that place that kind of unifies, hey, this is the good that can be done and we'll all become successful off the back of it. And here's all the evidence to prove it. You know, if academia can move more into that space uh, alongside everybody else, politicians, businesses themselves, that, that makes me so excited. I've got no idea how to do it, especially on the academic side. So, uh, so let me know if you can think of anything, but that would excite me. Well, I also like the discussion that, you know, opting in and opting out. Say a little bit about the Company Act in the UK and, and some of the things you're, you're I know you've we've bounced around some ideas about what that might look like, but, but say a little bit about what, what, what the ask is on the legal side in terms of creating a legal structure that might support more purpose-driven businesses. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the first thing to say is we're in the middle of this such that, you know, um, in about six months time, we will have a full suite of reforms that not me, but the whole group of business leaders and, and government uh, leaders involved in Regenerate will be saying, these are the things that we should do to tackle the blockers that I mentioned earlier. And one of them is on the legal side. So I haven't got a, da-da, here's the final picture, but I can give some thoughts on it. And there's a problem at the moment, which is, you know, the overwhelming majority of companies set up in a standard way. You use something called 172 of the Companies Act 2006. And um, uh, when you're setting up a company through Companies House, you know, that's the default. There are no model articles around purpose. Um, there's no nudging towards thinking, hey, what is your company trying to achieve when you're setting things up? And, you know, almost every large company other than you know, co-ops or partnerships are set up in this way in the UK. And under this, it's set up under what's called, you know, an enlightened shareholder value, whereby the focus is on your responsibility to the shareholders, the owners of the company. And you're, you're told to have due regard to a number of the factors that we would consider really important. And there is a lack of legal precedent of anybody holding a company to account for anything under that due regard bucket which in many people's eyes means that the, the legal setup that we have is geared far too much towards shareholder interests and is shaped around that than it is around shareholders alongside other stakeholders. So there's a, there's a couple of questions that come out of that that we're going to explore over the next six months. The first one is um, uh, if we feel that purpose-driven business is genuinely better for shareholders than everybody else, well, actually we need to actually make sure that evidence is more widely available to people because actually that solves half of that problem. The other side of things, though, is the lack of uh, the presence of ambiguity, the presence of concern that actually legally companies are set up around shareholder um, value maximization rather than having proper regard for all those other stakeholders uh, means that the orientation of many companies is towards shareholders rather than wider stakeholders. And that came up in our poll that we did with the British Academy, which showed that took, we asked them um, uh, uh, which of a number of things they thought would be most helpful in developing purposeful businesses in the UK. And the top two uh, issues by an absolute mile were governments of supporting and incentivizing it and the legal and regulatory environment within which they sit, making it obvious that that was the purpose of a business. And so at the moment, there's a default which is ambiguous, but tends to point towards shareholders and not wider stakeholders. And that, that, that's something I think we need to fix and something we're going to try and work out how to do that. 
I like that idea of, in essence, basically saying that when you go to incorporate in the U.S., you know, it's an S corp or a C corp, and it's about you know tax pass throughs and things. But the idea that in your articles of incorporation that you have to at least file that you have a purpose and describe what the purpose is, you know, if nothing else, you know, make that you know one of the legal requirements to incorporate that you've at least done that. Um, and then if they want to opt out and decide not to do that, let, let, let them do that. But, but make that the expectation that when you fill in your application for incorporation, you're asking them to put that in and describe it. Yeah. And that, that kind of used to be uh, originally corporations always did have a charter and a purpose, right? Mm. In a way, chartered by the state to accomplish certain specific things. So I think we need to go back to a version of that, it became purely about commercial uh, outcomes. But one of the other reforms I think is exciting, which uh, looks like it may be moving forward, is the idea of a long-term stock exchange, which has been approved in the US uh, by the SEC, uh, LTSE. And it has several different factors within it, but one of the key ones is that your voting rights as a shareholder depend on how long you've held the shares. So if you buy today, tomorrow, you really can't influence the direction of that company, which actually happens a lot. Activist investors will take a position and then threaten to or actually issue proxies to actually change uh, the board uh, composition or change the strategy, et cetera. And I think that that kind of reform would go a long way. Is there any version of that that's being contemplated uh, in the UK? No, but I'm totally going to steal that and look at that for the UK um, because I love the sound of that. Um, yeah, um, there's, there's been the social stock exchange. There's been, there's been attempts at similar stuff that if I'm honest, haven't, they didn't quite land, uh, and get the momentum they needed to, um, to be significant things. The, this is an area that I think one of our, one of our underlying thoughts on is we think that this agenda makes sense for everybody. And therefore, what we are minded to do is to find reforms like that, which is why I quite like it, that nudge and incentivize this kind of behavior rather than demand it or force it. The reason being, we think, given it's in everyone's favor, actually, if you give people the education and the information, this is the direction things will go. And so I like the idea of, hey, here is an option for long-term stock exchanges. Would you like to list on that kind of um, platform rather than another? rather than saying, right, every company must list in this way, every company must set up in that way. Because I think you're more likely to create that kind of binary us and them, there's profit people and then there's purpose people, rather than seeing purpose as something that drives profit and benefit for all stakeholders. So I think underlying a lot of the reform ideas we're going to be coming up with is this idea of how do we support and encourage what people already want to do and accelerate the growth of this ecosystem? Um, Because all of the evidence says this is the direction it's heading. So when you say that, I guess it sort of also brings up the money, right? Follow the money. And you said one of the blockers is the, quote unquote, capital available to purpose-driven businesses. Say a little bit more about that blocker and, and what you've uncovered there. Yeah. So this is a really interesting one that we've just scratched the surface of, really. Um, you've got two parts. You've got mainstreaming, mainstream finance, and then you've got specific um, uh, sort of social um, uh, impact investing or environmental impact investing parts. And you know, we did some, some, some digging and found some new data which showed that you know, they aren't equal parts. The impact investing part is about 1% of the, 
and the mainstream investment is about 99%. So it's not nearly as big. And when talking with entrepreneurs, especially, what we heard was early on, you need some of that social investment a lot of the time to uh, have the space, the encouragement and the support to to have a proof of concept that your purpose-driven approach can work. And that once you've done that, actually mainstream finance can often be the best way to go because there's so much more of it. You're more likely to have at every stage of your growth what you need to in order to grow and to therefore possibly impact as many people as you want. One of the things that we're going to be looking into and I think making recommendations on is, is there enough of that uh, impact money early on across different sectors where people are trying to stand up these kind of organizations? Because we had some feedback that in some cases that wasn't the case. Um, and how that should interact uh, uh, with uh, the mainstream markets, because I think there's also something about education and reforms within that mainstream market that are necessary to make sure that this kind of purpose-driven agenda doesn't become this niche that can only be funded in a certain way and is only interesting to a certain group of people. Because ultimately, if we're going to normalize this, then it's got to be taken on by everybody. And I think you look at the data around it, the expectation, the hope is that, that that's what will happen. And what about it, the broader for the larger businesses and the dynamics that are going on there? What, what have you observed in, in that space? Um, this, is our, this is our least worked through space, to be honest with you, because as you start to map all of the different influences, we did a, a systems map, of all the different influences on a, in a FTSE 100 or FTSE 250 um, business. And often things are simplified saying, hey, you know, it's the kind of, it's the asset owners, it's the, it's, you know, it's the, or it's the pension holders, or it's, it's, it's someone in that system who's the problem. And we need to uh, demand that they, that they change the way that they do things. And what our initial analysis revealed is the sheer complexity of that system means that there's not one actor for whom there was a huge responsibility to change things to proper purpose-driven activity and to facilitate companies being more purpose-driven. Actually, it's a systems issue uh, that needs to be looked at from that perspective. So um, being honest with you, with our initial analysis, we looked at that and thought, hey, we need, a, we need a longer runway to work this through because otherwise we're going to come up with a simplistic answer to a very complex problem that if you get it wrong, it's just going to create more problems down the line. So you know, have me on in uh, nine months, six months time or something. And I, I hope we'll have an answer to that, but we don't have one yet. So Ed, I think this discussion about, uh, you know, investors automatically or not automatically, but certainly leads us into the place of discussing, you know, if you're going to go make an investment, you're going to want to be able to measure, you know, <laughs> who's good at this, who's not good at that. And I think that was one of your, your fourth blocker, I think, was around uh, the, the ability to measure. Yeah. And say a little bit about that. <laughs> so, you know, there's two sides to this. One of it is how can you identify who is a purpose-driven business? And that is about, do they intend to make the world a better place? Are they shoving that into every part of their DNA as a company? And then there's this terrifying bit of, I think, all businesses, which is, like, that's what we're intending to do. Like, have we done now, have we made a positive difference? And for a purpose-driven business, that's huge. For consumers, for employers to say, hey, this is a company that I want to uh, get on board with. You know, intent's one thing. It's really important, and it's different from, from just focusing on impact. But um, uh, understand that impact's important too. And 
just to say the reason we think identi- identifying intent and uh, finding out the kind of impact of business are, both need to go hand in hand for us is because impact measurement definitely needs to be improved, but it will never be perfect. And unless we understand who has intent, it, it's, and, uh, it, it's, uh, there's chances for gaming it such that you can show a good metric, but not believe it and be, you know, doing terrible things in other areas. Um, and so that's why the two need to go hand in hand. I think it's a really interesting time because on the one hand, um, you know, there's this whole ESG and metrics um, happening. And, you know, it's very clear that people are starting to coalesce around a smaller group of ESG metrics. BlackRock came out last uh, couple of weeks ago and said they're launching an initiative um, uh, to make sure that the various different alphabet soup companies that are groups that are all out there working on ESG, ESG come to some kind of, uh, of, of, of more focused effort on here's some numbers. And they've also called into question what the IBC, the International Business Council has been doing with the big four and saying, hey, listen, we really need you folks to work together um, to try to figure out how to how to get this done and they're putting some money behind it so i think that you're going to see from the outside these standards emerging around some of the esg metrics on the other hand you know the internal reporting of 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 what are we actually doing inside the company and are we executing on those things that we say are important particularly regards to purpose they may or may not match up with some of that external reporting. So I think it's gonna be a really interesting sort of journey over the next few years as companies start trying to meet some of these standards that are set from the outside by the ESG world, while at the same time trying to live, you know, specifically inside our company, if we're living our particular purpose, you know, what are those quote unquote leading indicators that, that are starting to show that we're having an impact? Yeah. Totally agree. And I think that we look at it quite simply. There there are so many big brains working on how you solve this problem that on on one hand, that kind of means uh, we're likely to find a better solution than we currently have. On the other hand, interestingly, it's kind of led to complexity because there's been lots of different people working on impact measurement, which means the really simple questions of I'm a business what is the framework I should use? It's not an easy question to answer. Flip it round. If you're an investor, hey, you know, what is the what is the what is the measurement metric that I should be using to identify which companies to invest in? Um, and it's it's like the wild west out there because there's so many players. So, you know, one of the examples of where things seem to have gone wrong is you know, you've had um, you've had Boohoo in the UK like, um, mm. who recently. Uh, were found to have um, kind of modern day slavery issues within their supply chain in terms of the working conditions and the the level people were being paid at in the UK. Um, and they were, by a number of ESG ratings agency, given a double A rating. Mm. In, uh, spe- and one of them especially mentioned uh, how excellent they were on labor standards. Yeah. And yeah. so it brings into question the robustness of some of what's out there. That, combined with the complexity of there being so many players, yeah. I think it's part of the problem. And you know, like you said, bringing this all together such that um, there is consistency, there is continuity, such that we can answer that question easily if a business says, hey, how do I, where should I go to measure? 
Yeah. And if, if you're an investor or consumer, you say, hey, how can I tell who's doing good and who's not? Yeah. Um, when those questions become easy to answer, I think um, we'll have all done our job. Well, you know, I, I think you're right. At one level, there's this deep complexity. On the other hand, you know, not to, to, to push our own, blow our own horn, but, you know, in our book, <laughs> The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. Very smooth. <laughs> in the introduction to part one, we, we sort of lay out, here's 10 simple questions on purpose. And we designed that for a, a, an executive team to sort of look at that and sort of ask themselves if this was true, um, you know, on a scale of one to five, score yourself and then reflect on whether or not this is real for you. And then we also recommended, you know, that you go a couple levels deeper in the organization and do some quick surveys, 10 questions, and get feedback from whether the organization believes some of these statements are true. So it, it's, it's interesting that on the one hand, we have this great degree of complexity of trying to, you know, maybe even eventually connect with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals of the UN, and say, yeah, we're having a big impact. Yet, at the other hand, I think that there's some real simplicity to sort of saying, you know, let's go into the organization and ask a few questions. Do we think that, you know, uh, that we're living our purpose? Do you understand our purpose? Does it impact your work day to day? Do you think our customers believe in our purpose? You know, there's just a whole, there, there is the other end, you know, don't want to oversimplify it, but I don't want to make it over, overly complex either. Well, thank you, Ed, for the work that you're doing. I'm really excited to see uh, where this uh, evolves to and how we can learn. I think uh, many countries are doing things along these lines, uh, and I think we can all learn from each other. So it's going to be an exciting journey. I'm uh, just curious about some of the influences uh, on you, uh, some books that you would recommend or thought leaders that you, you follow. Uh, do you have any suggestions for our listeners? So the truth is, so much about what we are building our work on, so little comes from us, and we've just tried to absorb everything that's out there. Um, two things, I think, from very different angles that influence me. One is your top-down, strategic, big-brain thinking, which has come from the future of the corporation work, led by Colin Mayer, uh, who, uh, who's been working at the British Academy. And um, that has really led the thinking, especially in academic circles, along with someone called Paul Collier, who's been thinking about uh, capitalism through this lens. And I think I've really been inspired by both of them. Um, there's then another book, which I, um, uh, I love because it comes from a very different angle called uh, If This Is a Man by a guy called Primo Levi. And that talks about um, uh, the Second World War and the reality of being a, a, a Jew in Germany going through uh, all that he did. And the reason I recommend that is it's such a brilliant tale of someone going through all of life's difficulties and uh, explaining the kind of social impact of decisions um, on the ground. And I think if people have in mind, like uh, how is this affecting people uh, outside of my boardroom? I think that goes a long way to finding the problem because ultimately this is about people. And so that focus on that alongside the, um, the kind of esoteric, academic, big picture thinking those two hand in hand are always what we try to do at Regenerate. So uh, yeah, that's my, those, are my, those are my three I'm going to go with. I love it. I love it. Well, Ed, thank you so much for your time and I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you, Ed. I'll see you next week, Timothy. Yes, indeed. And thank you, everybody, for listening in to our 14th episode. And whatever channel you're subscribing to, remember, there's a subscription button somewhere on that dial. Press it and... If you have any thoughts or comments, don't forget to go to our website, theconsciouscapitalists.com, 
and leave us some comments or thoughts there. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. And do look at consciouscapitalism.org if you want to learn more about the Conscious Capitalism movement.